Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take your Bible and uh, turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to begin our study of Jonah. Appreciate Jerry uh, going to build uh, our series off of Jerry's message earlier on the book of Jonah, the book I've been thinking about preaching for a long time, probably two or three years. It takes me, it's seemingly in the garden of my sermons, and that's what sermons are. They're like gardens. You don't want to pick the fruit too early. You ever eat a tomato that wasn't quite ripe? I've not had a good tomato in a long time, speaking of tomatoes. I don't know what happened this last season. I just They were all hothouse ones or half, half, uh, half done. Sermons are like that. They have to grow in the garden of God, and, and when they're ripe in God's timing and purpose, and you pick them, it just seems to fit. And uh, it's time for us to, to meet Jonah. I've titled the message by... Uh, this morning, our introductory message to Jonah, to the book, is Meet Jonah. Well, hopefully you found your passage. Let's just read verses 1, 2, and 3 by way of introduction. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran from the, from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee, the old translation says, from the presence of the Lord. Well, from time to time, uh, you and I have the privilege of of meeting people who are well-known and even some that are famous. And you think about it, and I don't know who you think of when you think of someone being famous. Uh, but uh, and it may vary, and that's okay. To me, some of the most famous people that I've ever met are some of the great pastors and teachers and authors, uh, leaders of God's uh, church in our day. I consider them, from heaven's point of view, they're probably the really the great, although the world often pays very little notice. Have you noticed that? A joy to shake John MacArthur's hand and be under his teaching numerous times meet his wife, to meet uh, Dr. Jim Boyce and his wife. Just uh, wonderful, wonderful, godly people. R.C. Sproul down in Orlando and his wife. <laughs> and uh, these to me are, 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 the, are the famous people of our day um, and, and my limited way of thinking. Also, there are some athletes. I have to just insert this. There are some that I consider well-known and, and heroes. Jack Kemp, a quarterback of the, the great Buffalo Bills back in the 60s, won national championships with the old AFCs. Uh, then he became congressman and unsuccessfully ran for the president, uh, vice presidency of the United States. Uh, I had a chance to meet uh, Jack Kemp. He's a Christian man. He spoke... Uh, at a Presbyterian church there in, in Buffalo, New York, years and years ago. And uh, other athletes through the years had the joy of meeting and seeing. Had a chance, of course, our own Kyle Brady. I, and many of you know Kyle and had the joy of baptizing him. And early on, seeing him grow in grace. And, and I often laugh because uh, when I had the joy of baptizing him, uh, I wondered how I was going to do that. He's so tall and big. In fact, I, I think I probably told you this. Jonathan said to me, Dad, how are you going to do it? I said, well, I'll probably ask him to get on his knees in the baptistry. Well, that's exactly what I did. And then I baptized him that night. Some of you remember. Do you guys remember that? You remember that, yeah. And, well, here's Jonathan. He's about yay high, right? After he says, hey, Dad, Dad, hey, Dad. How come when Kyle was on his knees, he was still bigger than you? Only a son would say that to me. <laughs> Thank you, son, for that. I'll never forget it. 
you know, great men of God in our day, uh, you'll forgive me, some great athletes who are just excel in, in, in their sports. And, uh, and so, so occasionally we do. We, get, we have an opportunity to meet some, some, uh, some well-known people, even some great heroes. Uh, today, we are going to meet a man called Jonah, and he's famous. He is famous, not infamous. The difference between infamous and famous is infamous means you're famous for a bad reason. No, Jonas is, Jonah is... Uh, He's, uh, he's well-known, and anyone who has at least a little bit of knowledge about the Bible, they've heard of him. He's usually, people refer to him as Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale. Be careful of your life, because uh, the little things that get stuck to it, you know? Rahab the... Yeah, see what I mean? Jonah and the whale. Yeah, you've got to be careful, you know, how you live your life, because... Those little tags sort of follow you around, and Jonah is well-known, and, and people think of him with Jonah and the whale. Now, his name means dove in the Hebrew, dove like the bird. Well, the book of Jonah searches our hearts and our consciences because it's the story of a man who's on the run from God. The book is fascinating, it's instructive, it's immensely practical, uh, the book of Jonah. Jonah was one of God's prophets who was trained in Elijah, in Elisha's school of the prophets. Uh, you've never heard of that uh, unless you saw it tucked away there in the Old Testament, in the historical sections, but indeed in that day it was the uh, Harvard University of that day. When Harvard was established, it was felt in the colonial days that uh, there was a need for an educated clergy. It was uh, really uh, nothing more than an early Bible school or seminary, that is Harvard, for the training of an, a well-trained uh, clergy. And in that day, in New England, uh, the men who were most trained in uh, in the literature and the arts and the languages and theology, they were the intelligentsia of that day. Where were the men and women who stood? By, were, pardon me. Were the men that that stood behind the pulpits and were the pastors of that church? And in that early century, that was probably one of the most enlightened times of New England. Well, that's what uh, the school that Jonah graduated from. It was the school of the prophets. He was the, um, the immediately. He was the immediate uh, uh, successor to Elijah and to Elisha, the great prophets of the Old Testament. Some of his contemporaries, just to help you with the framework of your Bible, were Hosea and Amos. He knew them well. They were uh, fellow prophets, uh, men, uh, young men that spoke for God in attempting to turn a nation back to God. It was a prosperous time in Israel. And yet it was a sinful time. And God raised up the school to raise up young men that would call back people uh, to worship and serve the Lord their God. Well, Jonah lived during the reign, the evil reign of Jeroboam II. And he ministered, he was being called to serve God in Nineveh. In the year six, uh, 760, for those of you who like the chronology and to be able to place that, I think is fairly accurate. That's where Jonah would serve, and, this, and that's what this book unfolds. Now, let's just leave forward to help you today. So it doesn't, Nineveh seems so far away. Nineveh uh, was uh, to become a capital city in the country that today we know as, as Iraq. Have you heard of that lately? That's where he went to, uh, to be God's servant, though reluctant at first to preach the word of God. Well, God uh, certainly prepared Nineveh for the receiving of his word. This wasn't a last-minute thought by God. God is working from beginning to end all the way through. And uh, some of the writers uh, plug into this and talk about how God was was turning over the soil of the hearts of the Ninevites in preparation for the coming of his word. Some things that occurred were, it was, uh, 
it was a, a sort of on a decline. Uh, Nineveh had, uh, had left some of the great days that it enjoyed earlier as an empire on the downhill side. Sometimes people say that about our country. We're on the downhill side. I don't think you can ever measure that until you get a little bit away from it. Though sin has a downward effect, doesn't it? Uh, it was on the downward side. They had weak leaders that didn't lead them properly. Second, in the year 765, there was an enormous plague that swept through the countryside and killed many. Many of them lost brothers and sisters, moms and dads and greater family and neighbors and all the rest. So they were on the downhill side. There was a recent plague that went through. They were decimated. There's nothing like uh, uh, illness and travesty in families that cause you to look up and think about things that are really important, not your next vacation, not your next car, not your whatever, right? But things eternal, and God was stirring up their hearts. And then finally, in June the 15th, it's amazing how they can date this, in 763, there was a total eclipse of the sun and if we can trust the historians, greatly stirred up the fear of the Ninevites. So you had at least these three main things occurring just prior to God saying, tapping on Jonah's door, saying, hey, bud, I want you to be the first foreign missionary to go to Nineveh. I'm preparing the way there. I'm going to do something. And incidentally, it's important for us to study this book because it records for us, I think, the single greatest revival that ever took place in human history. And we're going to see that unfolded as we study this book that has often been neglected from our pulpits and from our lives. Well, uh, the book uh, has a direct connection with the Lord Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 12, we find uh, the text where the Lord is saying to uh, those leaders in his day who were calling for, give us a sign. Now here he is demonstrating he's the Messiah. Give us a sign. Give us another sign. Jesus looking right into their hearts. Know that they were liars, that they were rejecting him. And he says, you're only going to get one more sign. And he points back to the book we're going to study, a wicked and an adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here, meaning himself. And so Jesus uh, forever and ever uh, underscores the historicity of Jonah as a real person, and the event of being swallowed by this giant fish was real, and it really took place, it's not mythological. It's not uh, nursery rhymes. It really took place, and that's the sign that Jesus gave that wicked generation. He was the historical illustration of his coming resurrection, that after three days, Jonah is a type or a prefigure of what they were going to witness in the Lord Jesus on the third day coming forth from the heart of the earth out of his tomb. Well, to get us started, four lessons introducing us to Jonah, whom I would suggest to you we often mirror in our Christian life. He was a real person at a real place at a particular certain time. Well, the first lesson, and we're only going to look at uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. First lesson is this, past privileges, obedience, and faithful service can never substitute for present obedience to the Word of God. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Past privileges and obedience. We're going to see here that it doesn't matter the amount of the road that you and I have traveled already. 
God keeps the books, but it's a closed record. But it's not over for you and for me. I discover that a lot of Christians tend to coast. They had some great victories back here, and maybe that's you. God did some great things in your life. You really had a heart for the Lord, and sort of now you're coasting. You're not uh, obeying presently the word like you know you should. The first thing that jumps out to us by way of introduction in Jonah's life is just that. Past privilege. Oh, he was privileged. Past obedience. He was obedient. He was fruitful even. It's no substitution for present obedience to the word and to the will of God. You see, A, Jonah had been used by God to speak to a, a, a godless king, Jeroboam, in 2 Kings 14.24. Let's see what uh, the text says here. In the 15th year, of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. and He reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Rebo-Hamath to the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord. Notice, the God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. You see, God had used uh, the young man Jonah to go before the face of the evil king, Jeroboam II, and to deliver his word. It's the only inkling that we get in the Old Testament prior to the book itself of God using Jonah in faithful service. He had been faithful. He had been obedient. He was uh, one of the, uh, the students of the school of the prophets. And God had spoken through him courageously his word to this king. Well, he's called in this text of 2 Kings, the Lord's servant. He had served the Lord with distinction. I'm saying to you that your past privileges, your past obedience in days gone by, your past fruitfulness can never substitute for your or for my present obedience to the word and to the will of God. We have such a sin bent that it, we easily get off the path. We easily think, I'll leave it for the younger ones. I had my day. No, you're still here. If you're warm and breathing, God has something for you to do. And it involves his word. It involves his will. And don't coast. Live today to the fullest. Now the single command and, and be of the Lord comes to him. Here it is. Here, go, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. It's a simple command, you must admit. And, and, and he certainly understood it, and he disobeys. He chose to run away from God. The command was simple, really two words, go and preach. Uh, go and, and, and proclaim is the idea. Speak my word to, uh, to this people. And he chose to go the other way. Well, it wasn't hard to understand. It wasn't like uh, Jonah said, well, wait a minute, this is, I, don't, I don't quite get this, Lord. Let me study the theology of this. And he goes and gets the recent journals and gets the lexicon and the grammars and, and some of Calvin out. And let me figure this out now and dissect this thing. This is hard here. I'm, I'm the planks of the theology are, I'm a, you know. No, it wasn't that at all, was it? And you know what? It never is, is it? I mean, God's, God commands us presently, and it's, it, they're pretty simple to understand, Right? That's not the problem with us. It wasn't Jonah's problem. He didn't ask for clarification. He knew what the Lord wanted. Uh, you know, like what? What, what? What's often not our problem? How about be holy? Hmm, I wonder what that means. Be holy. I better say, well, there's an ocean of theology there, but even a child can begin to understand what that means. 
We're commanded as God's children. If you love Christ the Lord, be holy, be separate, be distinct, be different. Be holy. Don't play with sin. Don't, uh, you know, one foot in the world, one in the church. Don't do that. Be holy. You can't say, well, Lord, I don't understand that. That's not our problem, is it? How about another one? Flee immorality. No, we want to toy with it. We want to come as close to it as we can. We want to jump in and out with it. Flee. Run from it. It's not like, Lord, explain that to me. What is that? No. Don't discuss it. Don't debate it. Put on your shoes and run like mad. That's what he's telling us. Oh, that's pretty simple, straightforward. Like Jonah, go and preach. Flee immorality. Be holy. How about another one? Preach the gospel to every creature. Boy, I wonder what that means. I better, better uh, parse that and decline it and figure it out. It's, no, it simply means let the light of the gospel radiate from your life. Don't be disobedient. Let the love of Christ. It's the greatest thing, the most loving thing you can do is let the love of Christ radiate through you, through your words and through your voice to all others. You see, most of the Scripture is really clear. Go and preach, in our case. Be holy, in our case. Flee from immorality, in our case. Preach the gospel. It's like, Lord, I don't understand that word there, you know. He understood. And we understand, don't we? That's not usually the problem. Despite all his past privileges and usefulness, he is a man who slips, he stumbles, and he falls. And he falls. He had enjoyed great spiritual privileges, but he is no longer the man that he once was, is he? And so we must ask ourselves, by way of application, am I living with only the memories of obedience in my life? Am I doing that? Jonah was obedient, but now he wasn't at this moment in time. But we do the same thing. Good things in the past. Thank you, Lord, that you, you saved me and you used me. But am I just living today, right now, with the memories of obedience? Shouldn't be. Second, am I substituting my past spiritual record for the pressing responsibility of present submission to the will of God? Well, if so, if we're doing that, then we are Jonah. We are playing the part of Jonah and have Jonah hearts. And it's my prayer that all of us would examine our hearts, not only today, but through this series, and say, Lord, dig that out of me. I hate that. And let's live to the fullest each and every day as a gift from God, doing the will and the word of God daily. For past privileges, obedience, and faithful service can never substitute for present obedience. Well, that's the first lesson I see introducing us in this prologue to Jonah. There's a second lesson that comes, and we find this, that Jonah's book, you should know, is not about a great fish. <laughs> Sorry to tell you about Moby Dick may be about a great, great whale. Was it a blue whale? It was a blue whale. Herman Melville's, right? White whale. White whale. <laughs> that's right. It was a white whale. Some of you call me... Ahab, there you go. That goes back. And, and this is not a story about a great fish. It's really a story about a great God. That's really what the story... Don't miss the, the forest for the trees, somebody said, right? This provided great fish almost as incidental to the narrative. Well, what's the book about then? Well, it's about a God's sovereignty. It's clearly revealed from page to page of this little four-chapter book. It refers, of course, to God's control of all things. The end from the beginning and all the means and everything in between, all the variables. God never says, whoa, I didn't know Jonah wasn't going to obey me. Now what am I going to do? God never said any of that. He never wonders any of that. It's all his plan from beginning to to end. God chooses Jonah for his mission to Nineveh. It was a sovereign choice. God is calling out a people today. God chooses Jonah. He chooses Nineveh to be the city. It wasn't the one near it. It wasn't over there. 
It wasn't in Europe. It was go to that city. God had done some preparation work I indicated earlier. And now he is going to extend the call to repentance and regeneration to this pagan wicked people. God is exercising his sovereign rule. And he does in verse 3, even when Jonah disobeys. Jonah was to learn in a flight from God that God is sovereign and he rules over all. He's going to learn it with technicolor while he's out at sea. Oh my, God is in charge. While he's down in the depths, not 20,000 leagues under the sea, God is in charge. As finally he spewed out onto the Jersey Beach, he's realizing God is in charge. As he makes his way, probably bleach from some sort of hydrochloric acid, maybe uh, in the uh, belly of that great fish, must have made him a sight for sore eyes. Who is this coming preaching? Uh, he is going to learn that God is in charge of all things. And then when he sees the incredible results, of which he has quite a mixed reaction, he realizes afresh, God is sovereignly in charge, and I am not. And in fact, I would not have even brought that results about, for he had other issues there that we'll expose later. He was to learn in all of this, that God is sovereign and rules over all. The point of which the book is most informative and most profound is the sovereignty of God. Well, there are three things that God does when he flees. Three great things the Bible says. He sent a great storm. He prepared a great fish. And he sent uh, the prophet to a great city, and it was. The city itself and its suburb had about a million people. The walls of the city, and they were the defenses of that. They were, uh, the historians tell us, 100 feet high, wide enough on top. You could have three chariots racing around it. It was the Indianapolis raceway of the day uh, that they would do that, that kind of thing. It was an enormous city. They were a ferocious people, military, even though they were a little bit on the wane. God was going to demonstrate his sovereignty. But it's not only his sovereignty, it's certainly God's mercy is put on display. It's not about a great fish, it's about a great God, a God who's merciful. If the book one man writes is about anything, it's a, it's a book about God's mercy for lost sinful men who need repentance and forgiveness. This book tells of the greatest revival in history. There were a people unworthy of God's mercy. Well, then aren't we and aren't all people. Mercy is not something to be merited. It's the exact opposite of what we deserve and what they deserve. Certainly, they deserve destruction as we. But God is merciful. Not only is he sovereign, but he's merciful. He holds back that which we deserve. He treats us kindly when he ought to treat us like enemies. It's beautifully displayed here. The book tells of this great revival. God extends his mercy in the book to a wicked Nineveh that deserves judgment, to a disobedient Jonah that should have been put to death, and to pagan sailors at sea who even rebuke God's prophet. It's an amazing story. and It demonstrates to us the mercy of the glory of of our God. Some call Jonah's book the high water mark of God's love. That is his mercy that's found in the Old Testament. And so at the get-go you should know it's not a story about a great fish, which really is almost incidental to the whole narrative itself. This book speaks to the missionary involvement of Christians, or it calls us to lay aside all of our reluctance and all of our disobedience and fulfill the Lord's commission to preach and proclaim the glorious gospel to all people that we meet and live among. It is the heart, the flaming heart of God for lost men and women. 
you can't read this. This very unusual book, this, this prophet and this prophetic writing that is so different than the other prophets uh, because uh, really it deals more with historical uh, a setting than it does prophecy. Some have said that probably it more rightfully belongs in the historical sections uh, of the Old Testament rather than grouped together with what we call the minor prophets. It's not a book about a great fish. It's a book about a great God. And he is great and greatly to be praised. He's sovereign. He's sovereign in your life. And he's merciful. He's merciful to you day by day. Don't you love that? His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That's an old hymn. And I often find myself singing and humming. Great is thy faithfulness. Well, there's a third lesson that comes to us by the opening verses of this prophet, and that's simply this. Jonah's initial disobedience was easy. It was easy. It was easy. But afterward, the way grows increasingly hard. Isn't that the way it always is? In your life and in mine, it's easy to sin. It, uh, we'll talk about that. Often the doorway to sin uh, seems beautiful. It seems beautiful. But know in your heart of hearts that the path will be filled with great pain. Will be. Easy to sin. Looks beautiful. Beautiful. We have a deceiver of the soul that will trick us. Sin and the deceitfulness of sin will allure us. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eve was standing in front of this, and I'm sure it was an absolutely exquisite flowering tree, this forbidden tree. And she looked at it, and the text says it was beautiful to behold. It was beautiful. And uh, the fruit of it, uh, you know, it seemed beautiful. It would make us... Uh, be, to be able to have the knowledge of God. Uh, that was the temptation. You remember that? that? God doesn't want you to eat it because he knows that the day you eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Well, it seemed beautiful to her. And she took. And she shared with her husband. And now, because we're all part of the Adams family, look where we are. It seemed beautiful. It was easy. Right? And then the bottom fell out. That's the way it is. Uh, David with uh, Bathsheba. A beautiful, probably summer night there in Jerusalem. There he is in the palace. It's warm. He's he's up looking at the stars, maybe he just sang. And he looks over and the the roofs were flat, you know, with the porticles up there. and, And there's Bathsheba beautiful woman in all her glory bathing out there. Seemed beautiful. Oh. Oh, and he saw her. He said, oh, I could just enjoy sexual relation with her. Wouldn't that be great? Oh. And he calls for her and she comes. I'm saying to you that sin is often like this. It's often very, very easy to sin. The doorway looks beautiful at times. Come on in. It calls us. We go walking in, and we end up going places downward, downward, downward in places we never imagined. And so David invites Bathsheba, and she comes, and they enjoy the night of sexual intimacy. And there is pleasure in sin for a season. And then it begins. And he is dragged to places he never imagined the heartbreak, the loss, the devastate. You can read the, the account of David's uh, kingship up to that point filled with blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and it's like it turns 180 degrees. And the downward tumbling he set in motion when he said, God, I know what you said, but I'm going to do this. It seems so right. How can it be so wrong when it feels so good? Boy, you hear that, don't you? 
and devastation and death and loss in his family and in his kingdom. His son Absalom rises against him. He has to flee for his own life, one thing after another, after another, after another. And I'm saying to you, it's always that way. It is. The initial obedience seems so easy, and it seems so beautiful. It just calls us, entices us, but no that increasingly leads downward to pain and to loss. For the wages of sin is always death. Always it leads downward. Jonah A. fled in disobedience to the coast in hopes of finding a ship that could take him in the opposite direction as far as he could go. Tarshish. That's what verse 3 says. But Jonah, you should know, God says, go preach, and now we got but. You can almost B-U-T, you can almost circle the buts, right? But Jonah. My father would tell me, no, I want you to go out and shovel the driveway. We used to do that a lot in Buffalo. And I'd say, but dad. No buts. But dad. I used to have, I told you, I think before, when I taught homiletics to the young divinity students, and one guy has offered a title of a sermon, uh, and I sat in the back with a, with a speaker on, he couldn't hear me in a booth, and I'd critique it as he was uh, preaching. And then he said, I want to preach today a sermon on top. How big is your butt? I said, no, I don't think I, I know what you're saying, but I don't think I would, <laughs> yeah, that is not going to be a good title. No, I didn't mean that, Prof. I didn't mean, no, I know that. But he says, some people's butts are pretty big and they use it to disobey God. I know what you mean. But Jonah, it was a big B-U-T, not two T, B-U-T, but Jonah. Here he is, ran away from the Lord, headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. It's a port city, just south of Tel Aviv. I've stood there and looked out at the Mediterranean and thought just a scene where he found a ship bound for that port. And look at he had money to pay the fare. Wow. God is good. There's a boat. I got money in my pocket to pay the fare. I got a ticket now. And he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Well, in Joppa, I'm sure it was a beautiful day with a calm sea. It was beautiful. Beautiful. You don't push off, off on, a, uh, on a sea journey in, in the midst of, of a terrible storm. That's where the expression, any port in a storm. You, when the weather's bad, you stay in port. You don't go out there where you're going to maybe sink the vessel. I'm sure it was a beautiful day. And God said, I want you to go east. And he said, no, I'm going west. Tarshish, uh, we believe, is Spain. So if you want to go, I want you to go to Nineveh. That's east. He, I'm going this way. And he made his way to the coast. He went down. And I, the, the expression here, too, in verse 3, he went down, it didn't have to include that. He could have said he simply went to Joppa, and we'd understand that. Geographically, he went down. But I think there's a lot more being said here. I think figuratively he's saying, note this, when you disobey God, it's downward. It may have been a beautiful day. You may have had pocket money to buy the ticket. You may have got uh, passage on board. And all looked well, but it was downward. And when you and I sin, it's always downward. It is. It is. And so he went down to Joppa. Listen, never justify your disobedience by misreading your circumstances. When God tells us to do something, and you try and read the circumstances around you, to disobey God, that's pure disobedience. I'm sure when he went west and came to Joppa, he saw a ship and said, anybody have a ship here going to... And he found one, and he said, Lord, thank you. I knew you'd provide. You know I couldn't go to Nineveh. You know, 
You're so good. And he even gave me some money here. Lord, thank you. You're so good. He took his circumstances and he twisted that so that in his heart of heart he could try to disobey God and sleep. Be careful of that. We read circumstances through the Word of God. We interpret all things through God's Word. And God's will was clear here. Go to Nineveh. I'm going this way. And then he went there and he wow, providentially, God is good. He had the money, he had a boat, he had passage. Wow. Well, B, we discovered, as Jonah did, that God, the God who calmed the sea, I'm thinking of uh, the Lord Jesus in Mark 4, 35. Remember that, when he fell asleep on the cushion at night? I usually preach a message on that the storms of life, and there, uh, there he's sleeping, and they thought he was going to go down. Did, I, did we include this at all, Jen? Do we have this text, uh, Mark 4, 35? Maybe we didn't get a chance. You can check that later. The Lord is asleep, and they're fearing for their lives, and uh, they call on the Lord, and he wakes up, and he rebukes the storm. An instant calmness. The Lord of glory. And they were to discover there's something more fearful than a storm outside your boat. It's having holy God Almighty standing in your boat. And then the text says, and now they greatly feared. They feared the Lord after he did that more than the storm. Well, let's play off that because it fits here with Jonah that uh, we discover, as Jonah did in B, that the God who calmed the sea in Mark 4 is also the one who can stir it up to accomplish his purpose. You see, Jonah's life will soon be worse than he could ever imagine because of his disobedience. God begins to stir up the waters of his life. And he does this with us as well when we willfully disobey him. When, we, when we're walking with him in obedience, when a storm comes into our life and we call out, Lord Jesus, he's always right there to help and stand with us and bring about calmness in our heart and eventually calmness uh, outside of ourselves. But when we wander away from him in disobedience, when we go west instead of east like we should, like Jonah then the same God who calms the sea will stir it up in a torrent of a storm in your life and mine to get us to the place of repentance and obedience. Yes, you can't read the book of Jonah without seeing that clearly, that God is sovereign. And the waters are his creation, and he'll calm them as well as stir them up. And he does. And if necessary, he will break, uh, break even parts of our life to pieces if by doing so he'll enable you to walk in his way again. The illustration of David's life wonderfully teaches that. Well, God uses a great fish. It's one of the largest of his creations. And later in chapter 4, we'll discover God uses a little worm. You know, I mean, one of the smallest things of God's creation. And the point is, is that God will use whatever it takes to get the disobedient man or woman back into the place of blessing. He's able to do that. He's sovereign, and he does do that. And Jonah's book wonderfully teaches us. If you continue to obey him and walk a life of obedience day by day, moment by moment, you will find that your life is paved, a new jury would like that word, paved with blessing. And it is. It's that Psalm 1 life that we could save ourselves a lot of pain and a lot of aggravation if we just go east when God says, go east, and not say, mm, I think I got a better idea. I'm going north. No, go east. Save yourself the aggravation. Be a blessing. You can't imagine what I'm going to do through you. I'm sovereign. You're not. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I'm up to something great. Maybe I'll tell you about it. Maybe I won't. 
I'll tell you about it someday. And that's what God's doing. Wow. It's a lot here. Well, the fourth and final lesson that we see introducing us to this Jonah, whom we often mirror in our own Christian life, and found in verse 3, is that Jonah still needed to learn that it's impossible to run from the presence of God. To flee from God is impossible. It's foolhardy. It's, uh, it's deluded at best. It's wicked at, uh, at its worst. We asked, didn't uh, Jonah know David's Psalm 139? In Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, we'll have on the screen here, I want, to, uh, want us to remind ourselves of this. Did he not know this? Of course he did. This is 250 years old at this time. Maybe Jonah had sung this in one of the hymnals at the seminary, there at the School of the Prophets. David's uh, 139th Psalm. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Jonah knew this well. He knew it. It was as old as, uh, as our country is old, from the writing of the initial documents that were foundational to the establishment of our country. That's how many years from when David wrote uh, his psalms in the Psalter, which were sung, maybe sung in the synagogues and then in the temple. Jonah knew this. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't. But A, sin has a way of deceiving us. Jonah was being self-deceived. He imagined that he could hide from God. And it's absolutely impossible. Deluded. Paul writes of the deceitfulness of sin. That when you and I sin, it has a way of clouding our judgment and, and, and skewing our thinking so that we don't think the way we ought to think. We don't think uprightly. We start thinking bad is good and good is bad, like the, uh, like the world. There is a deceitfulness to sin. It tricks us. It fools us. And Jonah thought he was doing that which was best for him. He was being deceived. And so are we when we succumb to temptation and go west instead of east in accordance with the will of God. You cannot escape God. He is all-knowing. He's ever-present. There is no escape. I read the book when I was in high school, The Great Escape. I love that account out of a Nazi prison, the American... POWs. I think there were a couple Brits in there as well, and they tunneled out of that prison. It was uh, exciting. What did they do with all the dirt and hiding it and all of that? And finally made their escape. It was a thrilling account. Maybe some of you have read The Great Escape. With this, there is no escape. There is no place that you and I can hide. Jonah could go to Tarshish every day of the week, and he would not be hiding from God. I don't say, Jonah, where are you? I've lost you among the mass of humanity. Never. God knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows our intents. He knows our words. He knows everything that we do. And Jonah still needed to read his Bible again. To cement that firmly into his heart. Being final, so Jonah paid the fare, but he didn't get to where the end of his journey he, at least where he thought it is what he was buying. Nor did he get a refund. Notice that? Refund. I smell a refund. He didn't even get a refund. He got ejected from the ship. It's always that way when we sin. We never get to where we think we're going. David didn't with Bathsheba. Eve didn't in the garden. And on and on and on and on it goes. A man may be tempted to cheat on his wife and think that the woman in the office is just the cat's meow. Oh, wouldn't she be wonderful? The beauty of that, the enticement of that, the ease of that, 
and it will never get him to where he thinks it's going to go. It's downward. It's always that way with sin. It's always that way. The same is true for us. When we choose to sin, we imagine that no one, not even God, sees us. Don't we do that? We lie, we cheat, we steal, we have thoughts we shouldn't as God's people, and we do things and say things that God forgive us, and God forbid that we do. And uh, In the midst of it, in the heat of the temptation, we have the illusion, nobody sees me. Anything... But that is true. God sees us. And we ourselves know in our heart. Well, Hebrews 4.13 teaches us just that. Let's look at this verse that reminds us that God sees. This is one of the great verses in the Bible. Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, that's God, to whom we must give an account. Laid bare, Jonah. But he goes down, he gets on the boat, he pays the fare, he flees, at least in his twisted way of thinking from the very presence of the Lord, and in doing so, Jonah now must sit back and suffer the consequences of his sinful choices. And we suffer the same way. Well, Jonah is a man who's, who in many ways is like us. And there are many things for us to learn by way of warning and caution, by way of focus and appreciation. Many things for us to learn about the glory of God, his sovereignty, his mercy, his love, his reach for lost men and women. And so I offer you this famous man, this well-known one, Jonah, in our study in the weeks to come. Well, what are some lessons for our life? Number one, I wonder if you receive God's message of salvation. The Ninevites, as we read in the Lord's words, are going to stand up and judge the people of Jesus' day. Because the Ninevites were going to see repented at the preaching of Jonah. I wonder today if you have repented of your sin. It simply means to change your mind, turn from it. I wonder if you have asked the Lord to forgive you and that you've received Christ the Lord as your Savior. Listen, the story of the Bible is a love story. It's God's great love for lost sinners. Jonah reveals a chapter of God's love. Do you know the love of God in your life? God so loved you that he gave his own son, the Lord Jesus, to die in Calvary's cross. It's the only way to heaven. The Lord laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That can be yours. You must receive him as your Lord and as your your Savior. You must, you must, oh, be saved today. If I can help any of you in any way with that, if you have any doubts on that, I'll pray with you, counsel with you, encourage you. Turn to Jesus today. That's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. 760 years even before Jesus would be born. Looking forward unto that work. Number two, if you are coasting in your Christian life, and many times we do that. We shouldn't, but we do. But maybe that's where you are right now, resting on yesterday's obedience. In your heart of heart, I would encourage you to say, Lord, forgive me for that. I I haven't done much for you. I haven't lived for you like I should, like I once did. Stoke the flames of my heart to love you again and even more than what I remember in yesteryear. I don't want to allow past obedience and fruitfulness and blessing to be the thing that carries me today, that sort of inoculates me from being obedient. I want to be obedient. I want to love you, Lord. I want to grow old serving you for as many days as you've given me. And say with David, 
the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. David sinned, but God brought him back. Number three, don't distort either evangelism or God's sovereignty. A lot of people do. A lot of people treat evangelism as if it all depends on us. It does depend on human agent instrumentality. You and I, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. We're to fish for men and women, no question. We're to preach the gospel to every preacher, creature. We're to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and our grandchildren and those that we know, of course. But the reality is it does not all depend on us. If it did, we'd lose our mind. I could never persuade someone left to myself to believe. No way. God must also be a part of that. And so, don't distort either the evangelism, and some will distort the other side of God's sovereignty. Well, if God's going to save, he's going to save them. I'm not going to be involved. He saved me. I know heaven's my home, you know. So don't fall off that side, but courageously, fearlessly, lovingly, tenderly, be light, salt and light, and realize If and when God uses you to save someone, he did it all. It is very humbling. It is. And so don't distort one or the other, for both are married in beautiful harmony. And and Jonah's book is going to show us that. Number four, remember, I say it to you again, often the doorway to sin looks beautiful. It does. Hollywood, the media, all of that presents it as if it's beautiful. Just like a sexual sin. They don't even call it adultery or fornication. It's just like, just going to have an affair. And just kind of like, you can hear beautiful music. Like, oh, isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful? Just, oh, it's good for my marriage. You know, like, give me a break in the morning. It presents a way. I, I have to shout this because the culture is so against this. It doesn't matter the lives that it ruins and the tears that are shed and the results. It makes it look beautiful. Don't be deluded in this. The wages of sin is death on all levels. It destroys. It's not beautiful. And number five, Finally, your life is, and mine is an open book before the Lord. It's an open book. I'm sort of glad my, my life's not portrayed like Jonah's here. I mean, it's open for, we're looking at Jonah's gross failure here and saying, we're in the picture here. I'm glad the book doesn't say Terry on it. How about you, Larry? Larry, Mark, you know, we go on and on lists. We can, yeah. Whoa, man, there I am hanging out there. But we're in these pages. We are. But more than that, our life is an open book before the Lord. It is. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. Naked and exposed, nothing is hidden. The result is that one day, you and I will give an account before the Lord for this brief thing called life when we stand before him. We will, and the books will be open. And you won't say, Lord, you got the wrong guy. No, it happened in school a lot, and they always confused me. No, no, you're the guy. And, And just know that, and allow that to filter down into the way you and I live, and help us to live more circumspectly, loving the Lord, loving people, and serving Him today, today. Well, some introductory lessons that come to us from Jonah. Uh, you uh, read through the book. Maybe that'd be a good thing for you to do in your devotional time of study. Read through it. Maybe by the time you have read it 30, 40, 50 times, and uh, by the time you'll be able to teach that in small groups and teach that to your loved ones and friends and, and, uh, and so on, and God will use it multiplied efforts over. <laughs> 